This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Interviews. Hello and welcome to News Laundry Conversations. India and China are currently locked in a border conflict in Ladakh and tensions between the two countries are rising. There's a lot of fog around what exactly is happening on the border and what it means in strategic and political terms. To cut through the fog and discuss a complex issue such as this, there are very few people more qualified than our guest today. And our guest is Dr. Happymon Jacob. He's an associate professor at Jawaharlal Nehru University School of International Studies and the author of Line on Fire and The Line of Control. Uh, Dr. Jacob is a columnist for the Hindu newspaper and hosts the National Security Conversations show on the Wire News website. He has written extensively about India's strategic policy, Kashmir, disarmament, and nuclear weapons. Let me start with the conflict in Ladakh. There's a lot of confusion about it. Some defense experts, such as uh, Ajay Shukla, who you had on your show recently, have suggested that there are thousands of Chinese troops on what India claims to be its territory. In fact, he started a recent piece of his with this stunning statement, and I quote, for the first time since the Kargil intrusions of 1999, Indian territory is in the hands of foreign soldiers. Another senior defense affairs expert, the journalist David Devdas, who is also a news laundry columnist, uh, he wrote, and I quote, China pushed in at several points early this month, more aggressively than at any point since 1967. They planted a Chinese flag on the hill north of Pangong Lake. Chinese army boats, the color of dark clouds, now zip across water that India claims. But on the other hand, there are experts who claim this is not the case. The what what Ajay Shukla and uh, David Devdas and other people have described, this is not the case. And they are basing their claims on commercial satellite imagery that they have seen. But from what I gather, you seem more inclined towards the viewpoint of people like Ajay Shukla, who say there's a major incursion. Why is that? I, I think um, um, you're right. There are, there are um, competing reports about uh, the veracity of whether or not there is uh, an ongoing incursion on the land of control between India and China. But I am persuaded to believe the increasing number of reports, uh, which seem to suggest, which also come from many of the Indian Army veterans, the uh, former Northern Army commanders, former Corps commanders, several of these people uh, who have served in that location. Um, it is true that uh, on an average every year you witness about 400 violations uh, or so on the line of active control between India and China and therefore uh, incursions on the China-India uh, boundary or the line of active control is not really something that is extraordinary uh, in any given year. However, uh, there seems to be there seem to be a lot more uh, violations this year. There seem to be a lot more reports about these violations this year. Um, so I am somehow persuaded to believe um, the people who have served in the armed forces uh, in that particular region, in that particular sector, who have come out and said that there seems to be a uh, uh, presence of the Chinese soldiers on the part of the line of actual control, where which has been traditionally understood by both India and China to be the Indian part of the line of active control. Now, the problem this, with this scenario today is that uh, India is caught in a certain uh, a difficult dilemma, difficult situation as it were. Um, at this point of time, uh, New Delhi has not really 
um, said that China is in uh, control of uh, a certain traditionally uh, certain parts of the uh, land effective control which have been traditionally under India's control. They have not said that. Uh, so if India does not make that claim, uh, and Chinese have been saying that uh, the situation of the land effective control is pretty stable and peaceful, uh, then uh, New Delhi is left with a certain uh, certain certain state. Uh, it will be expected to push them back. If it does not accept, um, then is it going to push push the Chinese soldiers back, or is it going to accept it? Um, so, the, as, as you as you as you uh, correctly pointed out in your question, there is a lot of fog surrounding this issue, and I think it is important for the government in Delhi to come out very clearly um, and um, tell the public. Uh, and it is a democracy, and we deserve to know what really is happening on the line of actual control. That clarification is necessary. Yeah, in a, in a recent interview, the defense minister, Rajnath Singh, he sort of indicated that the status quo had changed a bit. I mean, wherever you put the Indian claim line or the Chinese claim line, wherever the overlapping claims were, in, in a sense that even if they have taken over the uh, areas where India and China have overlapping claims, but they're claiming it as their territory now. They're sort of establishing a permanent presence. So that changes the status quo. Is that the case? You know, that seems to be the case. It is not as if it is a very clearly defined boundary. If it is a clearly defined boundary, we didn't have a dispute over the um, uh, India-China border, as it were. It's a, it's a over 4,000 kilometer long boundary that we have with China. So there's a lot of lack of clarity. Uh, and people who have served in those sectors uh, in the Indian Army would tell you that clarity is something that, that we simply don't have. In fact, uh, uh, Rajnathan used the expression, uh, the perception of the boundary. Sometimes the Indian perception is different from the Chinese perception, and that leads to, um, uh, and the difference in the perceptions uh, leads to transgressions, which is understandable. Uh, but I think what is being argued by many of the retired um, um, uh, people from the Indian Army is that this has gone beyond the difference in perceptions. Uh, this has gone beyond the difference in perceptions to the extent that. Uh, China has actively um, um, come on to the Indian side of what was traditionally understood to be the perception of the line of, line of active control on the ground. Now, this could be a reaction to um, the recent spurt in India's construction, construction activities uh, on the line of active control. Traditionally, India had a policy of not um, uh, fortifying its... Uh, uh, it, not, not really constructing um, uh, border infrastructure on the on the border with China, but that policy has changed. There is a lot of activities happening now. I think this could be one proximate uh, um, cause for uh, the the newfound activism from uh, Beijing side. The other could, of course, be the last year's decision of, of the government of India vis-a-vis uh, -vis Jammu and Kashmir, where. Um, not only was Jammu and Kashmir uh, divided into two union territories uh, and its special status taken away, the Union Home Ministry, the Union Home Minister actually went on record saying that uh, a part of Jammu and Kashmir, the erstwhile princely state of Jammu and Kashmir is actually with uh, the, the Chinese, um, Chin, yeah. and, and that needs to be, uh, that needs to become part of India, that we have not given it up. Now, by having done that, uh, the JMK reorganization has, in fact, uh, uh, from a Chinese point of view, uh, may, have, may have been a provocation for the Chinese. So 
if you come if you sort of uh, put the two together you have a lot of chinese a lot of indian activities happening on the line of factory control which should be the case and i think that's a legitimate activity that india is undertaking and then uh, the jangari organization um, i i think no one believe uh, believes in india today that india is actually going to take accession back from china if you don't uh, if you don't intend to do that why get into that uh, um, sort of a a uh, political spat with the chinese when it is completely unnecessary so i think there are there are some of these of uh, reasons that may have sort of uh, uh, led up to this this situation at this point of time but the so the same thing applies to on the chinese side as well right i mean that region where the conflict is going on is a cold desert what does beijing aim to achieve by taking over say even if they take over like a few hundred square kilometers of that desert what is the end game here you know i think um, uh, one needs to look at it uh, in a more geopolitically broader sense of the term you are talking about um, in the um, large let's say um, erstwhile princely state of jammu and kashmir you are talking about a number of things here one there have been reports about the presence of uh, chinese soldiers in the pakistan occupied kashmir number one uh, number two you are talking about the karakoram highway passing into uh pakistan yes. from from the uh from china so the cpec passes through the particular region uh, right so you have uh, C- the presence of cpec you have the uh of chinese soldiers in pok um and you are talking about the newfound activism on accession from the indian side which is also part of the erstwhile in kashmir as it prince the state of jammu and kashmir as it were um and then you have the of um, siachen glacier uh, the argument that many of these people who are making about the chinese activism in the region is also concerned are also concerned about siachen glacier because if the chinese troops continue to advance uh, towards india the indian border in that region or beyond the border in that region uh, they would be not far from the nubra valley um, and therefore india's hold over siachen glacier could tomorrow become a difficult proposition um, if not immediately um, so the the inching uh, of the chinese uh, towards the regions closer to um, siachen glacier t- towards the region close to ladakh are all seen uh, or have to be seen um, um, as strategically important given the fact that the chinese have a certain interest in broad uh, sort of uh, ladakh region uh, including uh say pok including um, aksai chin region plateau which, which is in their control and the cpec uh, connectivity that uh, uh, they are seeking to build with the pakistani so i think i think it is not about a, becoming a threat uh, in the in the near future but if you look at uh, uh, look at it from a grand strategic point of view uh, in say 5 years 10 years 15 years this this could become a challenge for india if you put all these pieces together and i think as 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 a forward looking country um, and uh, its strategists should actually look at some of these things in a, in in that fashion there are two broadly two views about this one is that india should just respond in kind to the chinese presence or incursion the other thing is that don't escalate the conflict respond diplomatically try to ease the tensions and then go forward but the critics are saying that even if you deescalate now chinese will be back tomorrow so you have to have that military presence you have to build up that military presence to counter it in the long term what do you think you know i think in the um uh, if you look at it from a broader larger perspective uh, here is a here is a country uh, that has believed in uh, 
uh, peaceful rise for a very long time. China does not believe, uh, up to my understanding, uh, in a peaceful rise anymore. This sees itself as the next superpower. With the decline of uh, the United States uh, under President Trump and its uh, influence in the region, um, and the general lack of interest um, in the United States to be the global policeman, China sees uh, an opportunity opportunity for itself to be the next superpower. So, um, China therefore seemingly wanting to become its uh, neighbors, many of whom uh, it has uh, territorial conflicts with. Uh, disputes with. So here's a country that is a powerful hegemon and wants to dictate terms to India. Uh, now, clearly, from a from an immediate military point of view, it is not uh, all that uh, easy for India to dislodge the several thousands of troops perched uh, in the IC desert, as you point out, in the Ladakh region. Um, so many, many people have um, argued that you needn't uh, necessarily distort them from there. There are several places in you know, on, on the line of active control where Indian um, army has uh, upper hand vis-a-vis the Chinese soldier, vis-a-vis the PLA. Um, so you could always do a tit for tat. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the same place. But I think, to my mind, um, um, seeking to dislodge the Chinese soldiers from the eastern Ladakh region is important simply because I think it is not just another incursion. It is not just another territorial aggression um, on anywhere uh, along the 4,000-plus uh, line of actual control with uh, between India and China. It is this particular region. Any, any, any um, uh, sort of India-China border on the erstwhile uh, principal state of Jammu and Kashmir is important for several reasons, as I outlined earlier. So I think one should not look for a tit for tat and give up the territory here and, and look elsewhere. Um, having said that, I think there are, there are inherent uh, limits to uh, China's uh, adventurism on the line of active control. As I said earlier, um, if China has uh, um, a certain amount of advantage in one sector, India would have in a different sector. That's simply the nature of the uh, geography and the and, and the distribution of forces, as it were. Uh, and secondly, China is also not going to push India really hard. And we saw that in Doklam in 2017, uh, when the uh, Chinese and Indian soldiers were up in, um, uh, in, in locked in a military conflict between the two sides. The Chinese did not push India beyond the point. It, it, in fact, it, it sort of, for the moment at least, reduced its military activism in, uh, in Doklam. Although it, went, it, it came back to build up its forces again, that's a different matter. Um, secondly, um, you know, India has a robust um, trade uh, with China. And uh, the deficit is in favor of China. So it would not simply want to, um, in a post-COVID world where there will be a lot of unemployment, there will be a lot of um, you know, lack of growth uh, economically in China, uh, as in other parts, as is going to be the case in other parts of the world, would China want to give up? Uh, um, on the 90 plus close to $100 billion trade with India. I think that's simply not something that the Chinese are going to do. So they, they, there is another inherent limit to Chinese um, um, adventurism. And thirdly, uh, if China has, let's assume, um, say, advantage as far as the land forces are concerned uh, in the Himalayan region, if China is um, um, doing better in the domain in the, in the Himalayan region, India can do a lot more in the um, a maritime space, uh, right? So China's real vulnerability lies in the maritime space. So I think India's, and China knows that. So India's ability to push China in the maritime space uh, is another, I think, inherent limit to um, China's uh, 
um, adventurism on the line of active control. So I think um, while I while I seriously think that is not the way India will have to go back to the Chinese one way or the other and ask them to leave the territory that they have now uh, apparently occupied across the line of active control, the traditional perceptions, um, traditional perceptions of the line of active control. I think that is necessary for simply because of the geopolitical um, uh, reasons um, surrounding the larger uh, Jammu and Kashmir region, as well principal state of Jammu and Kashmir region, as it were. Um, I think in the longer uh, uh, in the longer term, uh, India will have to um, uh, you know make it very clear to the Chinese that we are not going to you know, take the Chinese activism, military activism in the region lying down. Um, that India, the, the power differential, while we understand the power differential between India and China in the in military terms, uh, that is not going to persuade India to give up its territory um, on the line of control. I think that needs to be made very clear to the Chinese. Uh, perhaps I think it is time to um, uh, re-energize the Quad uh, that we have in the Indian Ocean region, you know, in um, um, in, in, in alliance with other countries. Um, it is important to perhaps think more um, uh, concretely uh, as to how uh, we uh, would want to face up to the Chinese challenge as it were. I think it is important that we take the Chinese challenge far more seriously. Uh, the problem, I think, in India is that Indian, Indian uh, decision-making is that uh, there is a tendency to focus uh, more on Pakistan um, because it's easy to focus on Pakistan. It is um, easy to uh, militarily um, engage in a standoff with Pakistan and, and perhaps come out with flying colors simply given, um, simply because India has a certain conventional superiority uh, with the Pakistani side. So the focus, the strategic focus has been unfortunately on the public focus, the strategic focus, the government focus has unfortunately unfortunately been on the um, on, on the relationship we have with Pakistan. I think it is it is time to realize that um, the Pakistani uh, the, 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 the trouble that we have with the Pakistanis, the, challenge, the Pakistan challenge as it were, um, is, a, is, is, is an irritant at best, is a pinprick at best. The larger challenge, the long-term challenge is really um, uh, the rising power, rising superpower located next door. Uh, and I said, as I said earlier, I think it is important to keep in mind the power differential, right? So we have a certain uh, conventional power differential with Pakistan. And, and given the power differential with Pakistan, in an escalatory situation, it is easier for India to come on top vis-a-vis uh, the Pakistanis. Whereas given the uh, power differential between China and India, it is not that easy for India to come on top in a standoff, in a military standoff vis-a-vis China. Uh, and, and therefore, given that power differential and being cognizant of that power differential, it is also important for India to diplomatically and politically push the Chinese uh, to somehow resolve the border dispute. Because if the more you wait uh, uh, before you resolve the border dispute with China, the more the power differential grows between India and China. Right? And the more the power differential grows, the more the, the, the Beijing would be, uh, the politicians and the leaders in Beijing would be tempted to ask for more concessions from India. I think that is India's real uh, China dilemma as it were. So you made a couple of very important points in that answer. So I'll come to those one by one. First, could you just ex- you said uh, India may not be able to challenge China on land, but on sea it has some advantages. Could you just explain what you meant by that? You know, um, much of um, uh, China's trade, uh, for example, takes place through the Indian Ocean region. So um, China is 
Um, China's maritime capability in the Indian Ocean region is very limited. Uh, it is still being built up. It is still sort of uh, um, becoming significant, but it is certainly not a major power yet in the Indian Ocean um, region. And much of the trade that China has with uh, um, 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 Europe, and with the Middle East takes place through this space, right? Uh, much of uh, China's energy needs are met uh, uh, by uh, met through the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean region. So India is a major uh, power. India, in sort of um, um, say alliance with the countries like the uh, United States and other major powers, has a significant presence in the Indian Ocean region. So India's ability to make life, life difficult for China in this particular space, in the oceanic space, in the maritime space, is much more than vice versa, much more than China's ability to, say, push back India. So you have, you're talking about um, um, uh, the, the, the Indians, the Australians, the Americans, the Japanese coming together in the Indian Ocean region. That's a powerful force to reckon with, right? The Quad, that's a powerful force to reckon with as far as China is concerned. So uh, when China uh, engages in a certain continental uh, adventurism, as it were, in the uh, along the line of actual control, uh, they would certainly be cognizant of their weak point, uh, weak points um, in, the, in the Indian Ocean region. That's, that's what I mean by India's ability to push back um, China in the, in the maritime space, as it were. In response to, of course, uh, the continental. Another point you made is uh, China no longer seems to hold on to that its creed of will rise peacefully. I mean, we have seen that in the South China Sea. We have seen that with conflicts over the Sea Pact and all that. And part of it is also the heavy militarization of its borders, of the land borders and the sea borders as well. And not just in Ladakh, in uh, Tibet also, it's been militarizing massively along the Indian border, right? I mean, in uh, just a few days before the conflict in Ladakh, China completed the blasting of 47 tunnels on the 435-kilometer railway line linking Lhasa in Tibet to Nyangchi, which is close to the Arunachal Pradesh border. So this, this railway line is part of a project which will enable China to move troops rapidly uh, to near Skim and to the Chumbi Valley, which was the site of the Doklam standoff. So this brings me to another point you made. You said India can match China on land. But given the growing economic and uh, military gap, does India at this point have the capability to match up this infrastructure building across the border? No, it would be, uh, it would be difficult. I think uh, as things stand, given the uh, power differential uh, in conventional terms between India and China, um, and, uh, and and given the disparity uh, in the in the in the material wherewithal in the economic wherewithal to invest uh, in military buildup or in infrastructure buildup along the borders, I think China is far better placed than India. Uh, I think I think we have to we have to sort of take that as given. That's where we begin uh, our analysis, right? So um, China's capability to do things on the border, militarily, infrastructurally, economically is far greater than uh, India's ability to do things there. Um, uh, but that, of course, does not mean that India should not be uh, building its uh, infrastructure or it should not be investing in its uh, conventional forces along the um, um, along these ter territories and along these regions. I think that's, that's certainly a must. Because if, from, from, a, from a purely conceptual point of view, here is a rising superpower and it will um, ensure that it is seen as a rising power, as a rising 
great power, rising superpower by everyone else in the international system. So if it takes, um, uh, so if it comes to making an example out of India, um, um, in, China is going to do that. Uh, and, and China has been sort of uh, quote unquote um, transgressing into the traditional Indian uh, sphere of influence in the region, right? In, in, in South Asia, one state at a time, uh, from Sri Lanka uh, to Nepal, uh, perhaps going to, it's going to be Bangladesh tomorrow. So one uh, state Maldives at a time too. at a time. Maldives, absolutely. So there has been this uh, encroaching, quote unquote, again into India's traditional sphere of influence. Um, the pinpricks on the India-China border has been uh, have been increasing. Um, it's uh, China's own um, sort of force projection in the Indian Ocean region uh, has been on the increase. So uh, here, here is a country that is uh, clearly flexing its its its, its muscles. Um, and uh, we, given the fact that India is closer to the United States today than ever before, um, I think that also uh, somehow uh, um, influences the Chinese mind, wherein it thinks that uh, um, you know we need to we need to show to the world, we need to tell the United States, we need to tell the Indians um, that the more you come together, the more you try and uh, uh, you know try and lock us in in the Asian region, the more you'll be pushed back. So I think. I think our ability to push literally, um, conventionally, um, infrastructurally, economically is far limited. And therefore, I think it is important for the Indian strategists to put their mind together to see where and how uh, India can push the Chinese adventurism uh, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, incursions back. You can't match China. You can't match uh, rupee with yuan. That's simply not going to happen. The, the yuan is more powerful, I mean, you know, figuratively speaking, than the rupee. Um, and, and India as a country, while in the 1980s, uh, we were probably uh, doing as well as China was doing at that point of time, not anymore. I think these differences will have to be kept in mind while we negotiate with the, uh, with the Chinese, while we calibrate our action vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, be it along the border, um, uh, be it in uh, Jammu and Kashmir, um, and beat in the Indian Ocean region. And so keeping that in mind, I think while we push the Chinese back, it is also important to, important to cooperate with the Chinese. There is no way uh, that India as a state can wish away the fact that China is a neighbor. China is a giant neighbor. China is a country with whom we have the biggest, uh, China is the biggest trading partner for India in, in goods alone. Um, so here is, here is a relationship I think that uh, we must also take seriously. While we keep our gunpowder dry vis-a-vis China. I think, it is, I think it is also important to reach out to the Chinese diplomatically and politically. Uh, it is also important to look for convergences uh, in interests with the Chinese in the region. Now, going back to uh, Wuhan after the uh, uh, Wuhan uh, summit between the two uh, prime ministers, they came out with this declaration that they will invest in joint projects in Afghanistan. I think that's a, that's a good place to begin with, right? So you, I think India and China should uh, think of, explore the possibility of jointly uh, developing uh, the region, uh, be it infrastructure in Afghanistan, be it infrastructure in the neighborhood. At the end of the day, I mean, if the Chinese build a road in Nepal, um, I think uh, India could also potentially use that road in Nepal. So it's not as if uh, a road goes just one way, the go road goes both ways, right? So I think, our, our response to China has to be a complex one, has to be a well thought out one. It can't be a, 
knee-jerk reaction. Uh, while on Twitter, a lot of people um, uh, may say things uh, that might amount to a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, you know, one, one gets angry, one gets upset about the, uh, the Chinese behavior sometimes, one may say things, I think, but our, our, our um, uh, strategy towards the Chinese have, will have to be more calibrated than a knee-jerk uh, reaction. But Professor, isn't there a bit of a dilemma here? So on, on the one hand, there's this growing uh, economic and military and infrastructure gap between India and China, which like you also pointed out, India currently is in no position to rapidly bridge. So to, uh, to, 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 to sort of bridge that gap, India has to align with other powers, like you said, the core, right? On the other hand, India is hugely dependent on China economically and the other way around also, right? Which requires cooperation. So you can't create a block on one side, which is like, I mean, it's openly aimed at China, at containing China. And on the other side, you are seeking cooperation with China for economic gains and all that. So how would this, how would you resolve this dilemma? I think there is no, uh, frankly speaking, there is no, um, there's no there's no way of getting out of that dilemma right i mean you know that the fact that you as a country cannot alone by yourself um, stand up to the chi the might of the chinese state in the years to come um, i think i think that's pretty understandable you simply can't do that uh, there are there are inherent limits to india's ability to stand up to the chinese um, uh, a growing power that it is um, so i think it will have to um, um, you know somehow make coalitions um, somehow sort of look at uh, um, other countries in order to join forces um, um, in the Indian Ocean region in order to stand up to the Chinese. India alone cannot do that. I think, I think there is merit in that argument. Um, at the same time, you know, this, this, this is a game that uh, nations uh, will play, have played and will play. Um, that on the one hand, you will talk, um, um, you know, diplomacy and, um, um, you know, diplomatic language with the Chinese. On the other hand, you will have to um, sit down with other countries and think of um, um, scenarios wherein the Chinese will um, uh, perhaps use its its force and might against you. So, what do you do in that situation? So, it is so it is not it is not a um, situation as if uh, you know uh, you are actively conniving against the Chinese. You are actively frustrating Chinese activities in the region. It is not as if you are actively um, creating hurdles for the Chinese in the in the region. You are not doing that. You're simply saying that we are we are only doing exercises. We are uh, engaging engaging in a certain dialogue. We are engaging in certain military planning, as it were. So it is not to attack China. Um, it is simply to tell the Chinese that hey, here is this is not a pushover. India is not a pushover. So tomorrow, if you um, take it upon yourself to push India to the wall. Tomorrow, if you take it upon yourself to um, uh, militarily up the ante against India, India is not without options. So it is simply a way of keeping its options. And, and countries do that all the time. And those countries that do not keep its options open, uh, those countries that have just one um, option in its basket is going to um, uh, going to bear the uh, brunt eventually. So I think, I think keeping one's options, a country like India, um, keep for, 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 it is important for it to keep its options open, um, while at the same time reaching out to the Chinese. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that this has to be a um, 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 you know um, simple one choice option. No, uh, this is this, this has to be a complex option. Uh, this has to be a complex strategy where you are in 
um, a, a relationship with China economically and, and, and increase the trade uh, volume with the Chinese, uh, make them more dependent on India, just as India is dependent on the Chinese, um, while at the same time telling the Chinese, letting the Chinese know uh, that uh, uh, should it decide to uh, push a certain offensive strategy vis-a-vis uh, -vis India tomorrow, it is not going to sit back on its backside and take it flying down. That's simply not going to happen. Uh, so earlier you talked about uh, how part of the reason for this could be when uh, India dismantled the erstwhile princely state of Jammu and Kashmir last year and asked to take back Excise Jill. So that could have been one of the triggers for this. So what I want to understand is now that this conflict is brewing here and you explain the like long game of China, how is it going to affect the Kashmir dispute? Uh, no, I think I think um, the increasing Chinese heat in the Ladakh region, the increasing Indian activism on Aksai Chin, the, in the increasing Indian activism on uh, uh, on, on POK, Gilgit Baltistan. Um, I think all of this will have uh, some implications for uh, Jammu and Kashmir, uh, the conflict um, in Jammu and Kashmir, the conflict over Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, there is no taking away from that fact. I think I think uh, gone are the days when we uh, looked at Jammu and Kashmir, um, um, where the third countries did not play a role. Unfortunately, wittingly or unwittingly, today we have invited uh, the Chinese to play um, a certain strategic role in in Jammu and Kashmir um, um, by virtue of bringing in Aksai Chin into the whole conversation between India and China. I think that was completely unnecessary. So, as I said earlier, um, you have the Chinese uh, CPEC, you have the Chinese uh, soldiers uh, reportedly present in, uh, in, in POK. I mean, I, I can't verify the veracity of that uh, that report clearly um, and the uh, there is a relationship between China and Pakistan so the more India uh, pushes the Chinese on the exciting question um, on the um, on the Chinese pinpricks in the Ladakh region the more the Chinese are going to talk about uh, Jammu and Kashmir the more they are going to talk about the disputed nature of uh, uh, Jammu and Kashmir I think I think that is the uh, unfortunate victim of all this talk as it were. Um, so I have always thought that it is uh, important, therefore, that uh, India focused on the bigger challenge. And for us, I think the bigger, uh, uh, more long-term challenge is China. It is certainly not Pakistan. Uh, and, and to focus on the bigger challenge, it is, um, you know, the, it's, it's a matter of, uh, as they say, principal contradictions. What is the principal contradiction? The principal contradiction today for India is China, not Pakistan. So resolve the Pakistan, resolve the conflict with Pakistan. Although I understand there is there is the alliance between uh, China and Pakistan. Um, while I understand that, I think it is also not impossible for India to resolve its conflict and differences with the uh, uh, with the Pakistanis. Look back at what happened uh, between 2004 and 2008. Uh, between 2004 and 2008, we had this fantastic dialogue that took place between the two sides, resolved the Jibu and Kashmir conflict between the two sides, right? During Manmohan Singh uh, um, and, and Musharraf uh, um, uh, tenures. And had that conflict been resolved at that point of time, today we wouldn't have had the Jammu and Kashmir conflict. And if we didn't have the Jammu and Kashmir conflict, the mother of all problems between India and Pakistan, the Jammu and Kashmir problem, wouldn't have existed. Had that not existed, uh, we would have been able to focus our energies on the Chinese challenge. But is that possible under this government? I mean, part of its project, the, the political mileage it gets out, gets from 
ramping up tensions with Pakistan and de-escalating with China. I mean, that's clear, right? So what incentive do they have to de-escalate with Pakistan and take the China challenge more seriously? You know, that, that, is the, that is a tragedy. Sometimes the more you invest in your political, uh, uh, political fortunes, the more you are focused on domestic, domestic political outcomes of your external actions, um, um, the, less that, uh, you, the less you tend to invest in national interests. Um, so this, this particular government is so focused on optics outcomes, uh, political outcomes, domestic political outcomes, and how uh, its foreign policy and uh, uh, external um, actions are perceived domestically and how to make use of them for electoral benefits in the state and other uh, in the state assembly elections or the national elections, that it forgets often to look at what is in India's national interest, long-term national interest. Um, standing up to the Chinese, perhaps, or having a coherent long-term strategy vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese is perhaps not going to um, give it much political. Uh, benefits uh, domestically. It's simply not going to be seen as a, um, uh, you know, um, as, as, as something that the Indian government did and therefore is laudable domestically. And therefore, uh, that, that lack of political um, um, outcomes somehow has dissuaded the Indian state to um, look at the long-term interest, national interest of the country which are the Chinese. However, contrast that to the, to the Pakistanis. Um, uh, the, the, anything, anything Pakistan sells in India, uh, especially in electoral terms, anything um, uh, Pakistan clearly sells in the domestic political terms in India. So therefore, our investment has been on uh, pushing the Pakistanis um, on the on the terror question, which obviously India should, uh, but there is also a time for peace making, making peace with Pakistan, resolving its conflict with Pakistan. So, so from the from the manner this government has behaved in the recent past, I don't think there is any seriousness um, in. Uh, looking at the larger picture 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from now, and how um, India should deal with Pakistan question and the China, and, 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 and the China question. I don't think that um, uh, appetite exists um, in, the, in, the, in the government of India uh, today, unfortunately. So do you think, I mean, even if it's for their own political benefit, I mean, they're adding those, uh, their own political compulsions, their own political needs, they're making those calculations also. Even within that framework, within what works for them politically, do you think this government has a coherent strategic and foreign foreign policy? Because what's happening with Nepal, what's happening with China, what's even happening with Bangladesh and Maldives, it seems all over the place. You're right. I think um, um, this government faces too many domestic distractions. This government faces... Uh, um, uh, this government is keen on... Um, what happens domestically, internally, everything that it does externally um, uh, is viewed through the prism of domestic politics. And unfortunately, that means that uh, India uh, today desires to or displays a lot of external aggression. Right? The more, so, so you have, if you, if you display more external aggression, uh, that will be seen as, uh, you know, as a strong government domestically by its supporters and the, and the uh, people in general. And, and because of the investment in a certain aggressive talk, aggressive tone and aggressive posturing externally, uh, it has uh, unfortunately alienated uh, its, its, its uh, um, uh, neighbors and, and, and countries in the region. Take the example of, uh, that you correctly pointed out, be it uh, 
Nepal, Bangladesh, Maldives, or Sri Lanka. Um, the fact that uh, uh, the Indian side has used a certain language vis-a-vis -vis these countries, uh, um, termites um, uh, about the Bangladeshi, be they illegal migrants, but you don't use the phrase termites against uh, um, human, human beings, beings. Um, who are residing in India. Um, you, the, the other day, um, said about the Nepalese, uh, saying that the Nepalese are behaving on the Kalapani issue um, uh, at the behest of uh, other countries, meaning China here. Uh, you know, the, the Indian Army chief is an honorary uh, general of the Nepalese army. Um, you don't say such things vis-a-vis -vis a country that you share a special relationship with. Um, um, so if you, be, if you behave in a particular way with your neighbors, if you use a particular language with your neighbors, the neighbors are only happy, right? I mean, uh, the Nepalese uh, uh, prime minister today is, is politically uh, vulnerable domestically. And, you know, the Indian side has probably given him a, an early branch to use it domestically against India to force, to fortify, to solidify its position internally. And of course, there is a China factor. The Chinese are trying to um, uh, wean these countries away from the Indian influence. And they use a particular language or takes a particular policy decision vis-a-vis -vis these countries. They will use that to their uh, to solidify their domestic political position. So I think all of this will need to be seen, uh, foreseen when you say something, when you do something. But unfortunately, that sort of uh, uh, clear thinking, that sort of strategizing uh, seem to be missing uh, in the Indian context today. And I would, I would clearly compare the uh, um, sort of strategic thinking and uh, visionary uh, leadership in external policy making, foreign policy making, um, um, that this uh, uh, government has vis-a-vis -vis the previous uh, government of, led by the Congress party. Um, I mean, one might say that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of biased towards them, but I'm simply going to look at the uh, look at the kind of relationship that we have we had with our neighbors during that particular phase, during that particular government, and the kind of mess that we find ourselves uh, in today. This may this mess may help India domestically, the BJP domestically, but it does not help India uh, externally. And so I think I think there is a, um, a general lack of direction. There's a general lack of strategic in the Indian thinking today. Uh, I think that's pretty visible to everyone who observes it pretty closely. Uh, professor, you have studied and written about the Kashmir conflict for a long time. And I know that you are a very staunch critic of the Modi government's Kashmir policy, such as it is, uh, which you have described as disastrous. And the abrogation of Article 370 last year, which dismantled whatever remained of Jammu and Kashmir's autonomy under the Indian constitution, you described it as open heart surgery and predicted that there would be bleeding. First, what did you mean by that? And has that come to come to pass? What you sort of, sort of thought would happen? I, I had predicted blood um, bleeding in Jammu and Kashmir. I said this was an open heart surgery and that would lead to bleeding. And I think I think uh, uh, my, my my prediction is being borne out today and it and will be uh, borne out in the, in the months and years to come. Uh, just take a look at the data um, on violence in Jammu and Kashmir. If you look at the cumulative data. Uh, for five months in the run-up to uh, August 2019, the uh, ceasefire violation data, the uh, militant uh, terror attacks data, you will see that uh, after 2019, August, the ceasefire violations have gone up, um, the um, uh, infiltration has gone up. Um, so you're looking at a lot more 
uh, violence in Jammu and Kashmir. You have no real data about uh, local boys, local Kashmiri boys joining the ranks of militancy in Jammu and Kashmir uh, because the data is not provided by the government. Uh, and perhaps there is, they, they, they are probably not joining the ranks of militancy because you have a unprecedented lockdown in Jammu and Kashmir, right? First, you didn't have, uh, you had curfew in, in, in Kashmir, and then you had uh, no internet connectivity in Jammu and Kashmir. Now there is a reduced connectivity. There is no 4G even today in Jammu and Kashmir. And the Kashmir lockdown has now merged into a morphed into um, um, a COVID lockdown. So people are not on the streets, um, even though they, there is disillusionment and unhappiness in the streets of Jammu and Kashmir, they are not protesting simply because uh, they don't want to die of COVID, even though some of them might want to uh, go on the streets and protest against the government of India and its decisions. The point that I'm trying to simply make is that the unhappiness, the disillusionment, and the uh, so-called anti-India feeling in Jammu and Kashmir is pretty apparent. And, and, uh, and it was apparent before 2019 August, and it has become more apparent after 2019 uh, August. Um, so every data point that you look at indicates uh, that violence is going up in Jammu and Kashmir. Violence is going up in Kashmir, not in Jammu and Kashmir, but in Kashmir. Uh, so if you if you um, go by that simple logic, um, um, you are going to see a lot more um, uh, protest agitations and violence in, in Jammu and Kashmir in the, in, in, in the years to come. Now, the current this current the current spurt in violence in Jammu and Kashmir, I think, is not necessarily a result of the. Uh, uh, the uh, indigenous, so-called so indigenous struggle in Jammu and Kashmir. A lot of what is happening today in Kashmir, the increase in ceasefire violations or increase in infiltration into Jammu and Kashmir is a result of the Pakistani activism today. Why is, why is the Pakistani state behaving the way it is behaving today? The Pakistani state knows that it needs to keep the pot boiling in Kashmir uh, because this is the first summer after the uh, August decision last year, if you let the first summer go without any violence and activity in Jammu and Kashmir, the world is going to think that Kashmir is free from any violence. And Pakistani state simply does not want that to happen, right? This is also, and, and, and it is also important for the Pakistani state to send signals to the, um, to its um, sort of sympathizers in, in, in Kashmir or the agitating population in Kashmir in general that we have not given up on your course, that we are we are standing by you. The Pakistani state wants to make a, uh, make, make a lot of noise about Kashmir, and it has been making a lot of uh, noise about Kashmir, and to sort of tell the international community, hey, there is a Kashmir problem. Everyone is so busy about, busy with uh, fighting COVID today, well, be that as it may, there is a conflict called Kashmir, so don't forget about that. I think there's a certain rationale in uh, Pakistan uh, to up the ante uh, in Kashmir today and also to tell the Indian state uh, that we are not accepting the fate accompany that you have served us. We are, we are going to stand up against that. We are going to protest against that. And this is the Pakistani state's traditional, typical, uh, tried and tested method of telling the Indian side that we are not accepting the uh, fate accompany that, that you have given us. So the current activism or the current spurt in violence in, in Kashmir, um, uh, primarily due to the infiltrations, increase in infiltrations and increase in ceasefire violations, is a result of uh, the, the uh, Pakistan army uh, upping the ante. I have no doubts about that. But that does not take away from the fact that there is an indigenous um, 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 struggle uh, movement in Kashmir. Um, and um, that, um, that course and that uh, struggle is simply not going to vanish. 
the only way that you can um, uh, do anything about it is to reach out to the people in Kashmir. And unfortunately, by alienating the traditional political parties in Kashmir, by alienating the moderate uh, political parties such as the Hurriyat Conference, the moderate Hurriyat Conference, and Mirwaish uh, 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 you have um, not, you have, you have created a certain a political vacuum uh, in Kashmir, um, right? The Indian government simply cannot reach out to anyone in Kashmir today. Um, it doesn't have any traction in Kashmir today. Uh, I think that traction will have to be rebuilt uh, at some point of time because it's it, it will have to negotiate with the Kashmiris, uh, like it or not. That's how conflict are resolved. But is, isn't it the case, I mean, at least from what they have done over the last six years, it seems this government is not even interested in reaching out to people in Kashmir. Let's see, I mean, the, the Kashmir policy seems to be informed by the same kind of political calculations like the foreign policy, which is like if the Kashmir if Kashmir is not at peace or at calm, if there is tension there, they can use that politically in, in the rest of the country here, right? So there doesn't seem to be that desire to reach out to people in the first place. You, you're right. I mean, you know, I think uh, um, uh, the Indian government's... Uh, ability or desire to reach out to Kashmir uh, is much less today than ever before. The only way that it is reaching out to the Kashmiris perhaps is by floating political parties that are um, sympathetic to uh, New Delhi, like the Apni party uh, by Mr. Bukhari. Uh, so, but uh, one doesn't know the future of these political parties. Uh, at least the traditional political parties like the PDP and the National Conference had uh, uh, had a hard time convincing the, convincing the Kashmiris uh, to come on board and be part of the Indian growth story, etc. Uh, but today, uh, after having alienated these uh, 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 political parties in Kashmir, uh, India depends entirely on parties like the Apni Party uh, to reach out to the Kashmiris. I think that is the wrong strategy. But one hopes that uh, once the uh, once the necessities of uh, 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 political calculation or domestic political calculation, you know, reach their logical conclusion, um, the importance of uh, thinking about national interest will kick in. Uh, put differently, um, I think national interest uh, will at some point of time uh, trump uh, the narrow political concentrations of the political party in power in New Delhi. And it is at that point of time, the uh, thinkers and strategists in India and in the government in particular, we consider the importance of reaching out to Kashmir because this is a sore thumb. You can't wish away that. Uh, some people make the argument that uh, this is an isolated problem. In it's a cancer, cut it away, isolated problem, contain it. Uh, we've tried doing that for 30 years. Uh, where have we reached with that? So, um, uh, you know, as, as they say in Kashmir, among the more moderate sections of the Kashmiris, goli se nahi, boni se, um, I think is the, is, is the way forward. Uh, there, is, there is no getting away from from, from that fact, ask any um, a seasoned uh, Indian thinker, um, strategist in Delhi, uh, how to deal with Kashmir. And very few of them will tell you that force is the way, you know, suppressing political activism is the way. Most of them are going to tell you uh, that dialogue is the way. And, and Kashmiris have made it clear time and again in the past that talk to them. What do the Kashmiris want? Talk to them. They will tell you what they want. They simply want uh, respect. They simply want uh, a certain amount of um, um, acceptability within the Indian state. And they're willing to live with the Indian story, as it were, provided you pro give them a story that they can live with. Um, so if you, if you give them the respect and the, um, and the considerations of um, um, citizens um, in a, in a uh, modern democracy, I think uh, uh, they will come on board and they will talk to India. 
and I think there are you know from from looking back at uh, from from a from a uh, higher state uh, higher national interest perspective, I think there are things that can be done. Uh, even between India and Pakistan, uh, in order to resolve the conflict in Kashmir. Uh, I'll take one minute and tell you what I think I have in mind. In my interactions with the Pakistani um, um, interlocutors, interactive forums in the last six months, I have come to realize that the Pakistanis are less concerned about the, the Indians uh, removing the special status that was given to Kashmir traditionally. The Pakistanis are more concerned about um, um, undoing the statehood of Kashmir and making Jammu and Kashmir a union territory, which they say is in uh, violation of the Shimla uh, agreement, as it were. Um, so if the, if the Pakistanis are more unhappy about uh, the uh, Jammu and Kashmir becoming a union territory than about withdrawing Jammu and Kashmir, there is a path ahead. Uh, the Indian Prime Minister and the Indian Home Minister have gone on record saying that at some point of time in future, we, we, we are open to giving back uh, statehood to Jammu and Kashmir, while we may not give back, uh, we, we will not give back the special status. So the Pakistanis are not focused on the uh, special status argument, and they are focused on the statehood. And if the Indian side is uh, um, uh, willing to give the statehood back to Jammu and Kashmir, I think you have an opening there. And, that's, and if the Indians and Pakistanis are willing to talk about uh, uh, the, returning the statehood to Jammu and Kashmir, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you will find interlocutors within Kashmir as well to discuss that. So I think, I think if one were to think about it in a cool-headed manner, there are there are uh, ways uh, or there are strategies that can be used by the two states to come back to the negotiating table if there is desire to do so. But uh, then again, all that whatever you said as as part of the solution that depends on if the status quo at least is there. But uh, it seems like after the introduction of the domicile, new domicile rules, it seems that at least every person who understands Kashmir in Kashmir and outside seems to think that this, these domicile rules are pretty much open the door to demographic change, which means Indian government is changing facts on the ground. So if facts on the ground change, first, do you think this is the case? I mean, these domicile rules will open the gates to dom demographic change. And if that happens, so that completely changes the nature of the conflict, no? Yeah, in a limited way. I mean, if you if you look at the caveats and the change, the amendment that was brought to the original uh, domicile rule, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. remember they, they, the government notified a particular domicile rule and then they went back on it and they sort of amended that a bit. I think uh, going by the amended uh, rules that they brought in as far as uh, the, who can be a domicile of Jammu and Kashmir? I think I think the the fears about uh, massively changing the demography of Jammu and Kashmir is misplaced. Uh, you're talking about uh, a limited change. You're talking about slow change. You're talking about changes that will take kick in after several years. Now uh, remember, this is this is a, this is a rule that has been brought in by the uh, government. A rule can always be. Uh, uh, taken back, uh, rule can always be amended further. Uh, so I think there are there are at the, as you correctly pointed out, it seems as if uh, the government has set in motion a process that would uh, perhaps in the years to come slowly but steadily change the uh, uh, nature of demography in Jammu and Kashmir. That is accurate, but remember, it is slow, it's steady, it's a rule. All of that can be reversed should there be desire in New Delhi. So if, say, for example, 
the Apni party by Mr. Bukhari, uh, headed by Mr. Bukhari, is able to negotiate with um, uh, the government of India and say that uh, do, don't uh, uh, change the demography of Jammu and Kashmir or tell the government that, listen, uh, give us our statehood back and we are willing to give up on the special status um, um, course. Um, I think I think we probably would have made a headway at that point of time. So I think the status quo ante, uh, as it existed before August 2000, 2019, is not going to come back. Uh, I think all, all sides will have to make compromises. And what the contours, contours of those compromises are is something that they will have to sit down and talk about. But unfortunately, there is no uh, sitting down and talking that's happening at this point of time. There is no desire to sit down and talk at that point at, at this point of time. The only way to uh, sort of sit down and talk is to take the opposition political parties in Jammu and Kashmir on board. And for that to happen, you need to release the political prisoners in, in Jammu and Kashmir, right, including or perhaps starting with Ms. Mehubba Mufti, the uh, PDP leader and the former chief minister of Jammu and Kashmir, with whom uh, the uh, Bharati Jalda Party had an alliance government in Jammu and Kashmir. Yes, yes. Uh, right, so I think those, those small steps, steps would have to be taken. Uh, sir, I know we have gone way over time, but I'll end with this one last question. So if, if we go by the UN resolutions, the international law, the place where India and China are currently engaged in conflict where the fighting technically belongs to neither India nor China because the disputed region of because it's part of the disputed region of Jammu and Kashmir. Don't you find that ironic? Well, I think that's a, that's a, that's a tricky question. <laughs> let, <laughs> let me, let me put it, let me put it this way. I, um, um, you know, when I, when I look at the entire state of Jammu and Kashmir, um, the principal state of Jammu and Kashmir, um, I am, um, of the opinion that the uh, former Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir, Maharaja, Maharaja Hari Singh, uh, signed the instrument of accession and Jammu and Kashmir acceded to the Indian Union in 1947. I am not a revisionist who thinks that uh, um, the, the uh, accession treaty is not valid. I believe uh, and I stand by my ground that the accession treaty of 1947 uh, is valid. Um, and therefore, um, any amount of UN resolutions um, about plebiscite um, is not going to undo that particular foundation um, uh, treaty which made Jammu and Kashmir part of the Indian Union, number one. Uh, number two, um, even the United Nations um, is not very serious about or keen on uh, you know, plebiscite or going back to the UN resolutions at this point of time. I think a lot of um, the lot of water has passed under the bridge, and uh, uh, that is simply not going to be a, 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 a reality. So, if that were to be the case, on the line of actual control, uh, the question as to whether India and China are fighting over a territory uh, in the erstwhile Prince State of Jammu and Kashmir uh, that is disputed under the international law, I am not so sure. What I will say, though, is that uh, uh, the Indian and Chinese perceptions of the line of control, line of actual control, may differ. Uh, and, 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 and however, while the perceptions differ, what is to be noted is that the Chinese incursions are in a um, uh, in, 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 in territories which uh, traditionally have been accepted by both India and China to be on the Indian side of the line of actual control, even though that is a perception on the ground. 
thank you so much professor for taking the time to speak to us it was really a pleasure very insightful uh, discussion thank you so much thank you for having me thank you all the news laundry podcasts are available on stitcher itunes and any other podcast platform please subscribe to news laundry help us keep news independent to catch all our podcasts on news pop culture current affairs and sport visit newslaundry.com follow us on facebook twitter and instagram and subscribe to our youtube channel